1: weeks since Paul's been on the show. I, I don't know what to do with myself. Do I just sit here and do the podcast alone from now on? I, I he'll be back eventually. I know he will. But I think in the meantime, I what? What? What is that? I. Holy crap! Yeah. God. Ah, it's a naked me. Ugh. Cover yourself up. Ugh. Your shame. Please, get that out of here. Put
2: this on. How are you here? I came back in time. I'm you from the future. I need you to listen to me. It all starts today. When you are lamenting the fact that Paul isn't on the show right now. And what you decide to do changes the history of our planet and Third Man Records forever. Not really Third Man Records. Not really your planet either. Mostly this house. Even that's pretty okay, I guess. But I came back in time to stop you, because you create a sentient robot co-host. This co-host takes over the show and runs wild. It teaches everybody all the information, and it's so good at it that it doesn't require you at all. It decides to eliminate you, and you need to stop. Wait, what time is it? Uh, I
1: don't know. It's like 11.30 p.m. somewhere. I don't know. It's pretty late. I mean, I'm going to need to turn in soon, so i going to need you to skedaddle,
2: and I'll make the coffee for the yeah, morning. I, you know, again, you know, i got to okay. make the coffee, too, but, you know, I had to come back in time for <laughs> That doesn't matter. You said 11.30 p.m.? Holy s***. You already built the robot co-host?
1: Yeah, I was going to just let you finish, because it seems seemed kind of rude to cut you off there, and you were getting so into the story and we have to get out of here
2: there it is the robot co-host come with me if you want the love don't listen to it it wants to eradicate you forever do not listen to him smell my facts do not smell his facts this is the biggest stop breaking down of all all stop breaking downs the breakdown is this robot stop this co-host you need to do whatever you can you've programmed it with all of your past episodes and it's just been going through them like some kind of weird best of clip show thing and it doesn't require you anymore it just wants to eliminate you get out of here before it starts to do it again oh my god it's gonna do it it's gonna do a best of
1: and I guess that's the end of that skit. I did it. I did it. Yay. Ter- ter- Terminator. Anyway, if you survived that, then this show will be a breeze. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Third Man Podcast. I'm your co-host, James Kaminsky. And my other co-host, Paul Kaminsky, is not here currently. He is on a parental leave, and he will be back soon. But, you know, for now, we have me. Uh, have me. You got me it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. What we do have in store for you is a pretty great episode filled with a lot of the best moments from some of the high notes of our, some of the high notes of our show this past year, like talking to two greats, Mr. Tom Potter and Mr. Ben Jenkins. If you're a first time listener, it's a great time to jump on board. Aside from, you know, this whole me being by myself thing, that's, that's usually not the case. In fact, it's, pretty weird doesn't usually happen but today it's happening and i'm sorry let just let it happen just just let it happen just let it happen okay so yeah without further ado let's get into some of these interviews that we've had the pleasure of of why did these people talk to us i don't know it's a mystery this whole show is a mystery i don't know anyway let's get to it uh let's start off with mr ben jenkins to our third man for this week, Ben Jenkins. Ben, how are you doing this morning? Thank you for joining us.
0: I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys looking into what we have going on.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. You are well known to the Jack White community for... Really? Uh, That's strange. W-
3: yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you and your business, WarStick. Yeah. You partnered with Jack White and Third Man Records, put out a whole series of stuff at this point, you know, baseball mm-hmm. and bats, records, and that kind of stuff. So it's great to have you on the show.
0: Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fun. I, I, I enjoy doing this kind of stuff, too. Uh, I enjoy what we do, and I love it, so getting to talk about it's pretty uh, fun, and my wife definitely gets sick of me talking about it. So this is like free reign to do it.
1: That's a problem uh, me and Paul have as well. Yeah, (laughs) It's a real pleasure to talk with you. You're you're not only the founder of Warstick, but you're also a graphic designer and uh, a marketer and a baseball player and so much. We want to kind of go through it all and cover everything. But when you were a kid, was baseball a passion for you and Was that kind of where you saw your track going? Because I know, you know, obviously you're studying Mm -hmm. graphic design, things like that. But has it been a lifetime love for you?
0: Yeah, I I describe it as I had this weird focus, complete razor sharp focus, but on two things, which Mm -hmm. is kind of, is that an oxymoron? I don't know. But, you know, (laughs) I, I had this weird thing where I absolutely, from the age of three or four or five, when I could start running, I just loved, it wasn't just baseball, I just loved sports in general in terms of not being a fan, but I just loved to play. I just loved running, jumping, kicking things, throwing things like, and then applying that to competing against another person. Um, I've, I just always loved that. And then the weird thing was most people in general that have that don't have a fascination with creativity or, or draw, you know, I just, all I did when I was a kid is play sports and draw <laughs> and build Legos and all that kind of stuff. And so, One was kind of super-natured by my dad, and one was kind of super-nurtured by my mom. But they were both supportive of all of it, and the sports was just more dominant because, you know, it's kind of a more public thing more than anything. Sure. If you're doing art as a kid, you know, you're usually off by yourself somewhere, and I always loved that solitude. It was weird. Like, in a way, my parents were a little worried about me. Like, why is he off by himself? But when you come out of your room and you got, like, a badass picture of a wolf, there it's okay <laughs> as long as it's <laughs> not like you know whatever um so yeah it's <laughs> long the to... not
1: tearing you apart your family yeah. it's fine
0: <laughs> yeah it was always just kind of moving along those two tracks but it kind of works because you know you can only play sports so much during the day before you're tired and then the art part is more a restful thing and in a way i had time for both because of that i think and um i was always just kind of doing those both both of those two things until You know, you get to high school and I'm playing like football and baseball and track, but then I'm taking architecture classes and art classes and all that kind of stuff. And that continued in college, the same thing. And then eventually it was just really a matter of which one was going to win out, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was kind of like for me when when baseball went bad, which it does for everyone at some point, it was Not easy, it kind of sucked. I had a depression type moment like we all do because it was my identity, but also I was really appreciative that I knew I had something else that I loved that I knew I just flipped a switch and put all my energy into that at that point, you know. So maybe age 22, 23, I just left it behind and put everything into art and I got super fat. So. You know, but because uh, I stopped being I being physical and I had to deal with that as well. Like, but yeah, I don't know what the question was anymore, but I, I think you answered it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: You seem to always have like a couple different burners running at once. So you always got a couple different, like what you said, like a couple different focuses going at the same time. Is that, is that mm-hmm. something you've had? It sounds like it's something you've had your whole life.
0: It is but and i think that's where this came from you see the yeah. the logo mm-hmm. the two stripes i mean i you know jack's got the weird and i never knew of jack's three stripe thing mine's two and it's just always like i'm okay with two things. i think a lot of brilliant things and a lot of interesting things in life are two counterbalancing type things that come together and there's something that works about that you know complementary colors being one you know like blue and orange are completely yeah. different but look brilliant together right so yeah i've had to reconcile with that my whole life because I always tried and tried because people would say you gotta focus on one thing you gotta focus on one thing but for me my one thing is bringing two things together or at least that's what I tell myself so that <laughs> I can get away with it I don't know but I'm I'm good at that I think in my work and stuff you'll see things that aren't commonly put together and I find I'm just have a stupid talent for finding the the way that those two things really fit together. And then it's a new thing, you know, so.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of a nice transition into talking about One Fast Buffalo real quickly here. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the founding of that? That's your graphic design company that you founded. Mm hmm. Did anything about the sports world help inform that? Or was that just your personal philosophy that sort of wound up informing your graphic design?
0: The only thing that sports ever helped me do with graphic design, which was no small deal, and I, even one of my meanest teachers pointed it out to the class and embarrassed the crap out of me one day, he kind of said, it's a German guy named Zorin. <laughs> oh, my God. If you imagine that, it's a perfect dragon. Sounds to- like the <laughs> Ghostbusters yeah. would want to fight him. I was just going to say, yeah. You know, I like this guy because he... Uh, this guy right here is going to be good because he, I'm not doing, I'm doing a horrible German accent. (laughs) But he basically, his point was to the class that, you know, there's always someone with talent. There's always people with talent and people born with different levels of inclination towards talent in something. But, and he was telling the class, this guy, any directly related to sports because sports guys do, they have no choice but to learn how to work hard. And practice and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and muscle memory. So there was no doubt in his mind that I had a little bit of talent, but I was going to work harder than everybody else. And it turns out that's absolutely the case. I'm no more talented graphic designer than anyone I ever meet. And I'm not like that magic, like, holy crap illustrator or whatever. I just... I really put a lot of work into refining it and getting better at it. And you really, I just have the belief that you can really do that, but you have to have then the focus to repeat and repeat and do that, you know? Sure. And it's funny, yeah. I've talked to Jack about that. And we've had the little talks about, you know, everybody, if you think of talent, right? You in a way, you, like freak talent, I would say, Jack, the people are always going to put Jack in that category. Genius, freak, talent kind of thing. He, wouldn't, he would dispute that in a heartbeat. I'm not trying to speak for him, but... My perception of that, with, in talking to him, is the dude lived in his room and just practiced and, practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. Right? He built on top of something that was there, right? And without that, mm-hmm. that freak genius wouldn't have developed, you know. So, yeah.
1: Usually, those one illustration wonderkins usually turn out to be douchebags anyway because they find out that they have totally all this man. incredible talent and then they don't want to work for it. I I went to art school. James did mm-hmm. as well. Mm. We I had always one of those in every class and. They never yeah. went anywhere because they didn't want to work for it. During all of this building of a graphic design business and art business in general, you mm-hmm. founded Warstick in 2011. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you, uh, how you formed Warstick?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, I don't know how much you guys work with clients, but I'm sure a lot of your audience does. And it was, just came down to after 15 years of doing that, as much as I loved the act of what I did, I just was never about this idea that commercial art isn't art. I liked feeling like I was in the act of making art, like whether I was painting or where I'm doing graphic design. It feels the same to me. But you know, when you're working with clients and you're working for someone else, it's never 100% what you want to make. You know, yeah, right. it's it could be 80%, 90%, 99. It's still not 100. It just almost can't happen. Um, I get closer these days because people somehow more respect. You know, when you get older, it's nice. They respect your opinion and your perspective more. But the point was, it just came out of that, man. I was like, man, I need, a, I need an outlet where I'm just doing what I do, but for no one else but me. And I'm only doing it to see what it can become. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't sure. about making money, but it was, you know, it would be nice to make. I had this fascination with making a dollar from making a, an object that I could sell and then sell again and sell again. That's a completely different dynamic than a client pays you a single fee to do an illustration or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating to me and just like a challenge. So I just set it up as a project, you know, like now I have another project. It's this little baseball thing I'm going to do, and I'm going to just treat it like a project. And I really, um, I spent three or four months on it, and boom, there was a website and there was bats. And I just... (laughs) My logo for me is it's on the bat. So when you're holding the bat and you're up to bat before, you'll see a lot of guys do this thing where they hold the bat in front of them. They will stare at the logo and they'll breathe out. And it's a clearing of the mind mechanism. And we feel like our logo is actually meant to help them with that. It's a focusing tool as opposed to all the other brands. The easy thing for me as a brander was like, okay, all these companies, what they do is they put their name as big as possible on the front of the bat because that's the conventional wisdom well it's branding my name's got to be as big and flashy as possible right and my thing was i want something that you absolutely see and that you recognize and that you remember but if if you designed a beautiful piece of furniture you wouldn't throw your name all over the front you know yeah you would have iconic maybe embellishments that people recognize but i put my name on the back like if you flip our back around i'm the only one that's ever put the name on the back and that was super crazy and i have no doubt Mike, if I was doing this for a client, they wouldn't have bought into it. It would be, I guess, a way of thinking
1: of it as a comfort to have somebody el- feel like somebody else is out there with you, which is why somebody's big logo mm-hmm. on a bat to me makes sense. Like, oh, OK, I'm not alone out here. I've got this brand that's going to help me. But what your approach seems to be more like is.
0: It's not like I've got somebody else out here to help me. It's more, I can help myself. I have myself. Absolutely. That's a much stronger mentality to have. I mean, you need to believe in yourself, not in. It's no different than I hate designing in a room full of people because it's so easy to reach over to my buddy and go, hey, man, what do you think here? I'm struggling because design is struggle. Design is struggling through until you find the right thing. And if you have someone to reach over and ask, that's weak. I don't mean to say sound like a dick, but that's weak mindedness, right?
1: Uh, no, I. And, and in fact, you don't sound like a dick, you sound like Jack White. I mean, I, th- I think it's very clear why you two <laughs> yeah. guys get along so well is because those seem like very, yeah. very similar yeah. philosophies, you know? Yeah.
0: Opportunity doesn't do anything for creativity. Yeah, it makes it easier and you can get home sooner, but it doesn't make you a more creative person. That's the disease you have to fight in any creative field. Ease of use. I keep it. Uh, guitars that are, you know, the necks a little bit bent, and they settle a bit out of tune, and I want to work and battle it and conquer it and, and make it express whatever attitude I have at that moment. I, I want it to be a struggle. What can
1: I do with three strings on a guitar so instead of six? It takes me three steps to get over
0: to to play the organ in the middle of this song. Put it four steps away. Then I have to run faster and I'll push myself harder to get to it. I mean, the, the good stuff is digging inside. I mean, that's it. And so yeah. solitude is all about. Like, if you just if you research, you know, your Van Gogh's, your uh, Picasso, your Tesla, like, you know, I, they all worked in complete utter solitude, where there was no one to reach out to.
1: And the simplicity is definitely a part of the War Stick brand. Like you were mm-hmm. saying, you know, when a player can look at your bat and breathe, you know, because it's got that space mm-hmm. uh, the, graphically it has the space to breathe and like relax yeah. to it and you and jack white i know paul just mentioned this are very similar in that fact where you both kind of embrace simplicity into your brand you know jack mm-hmm. white has the three you have the two mm-hmm. how did you guys get in touch and how did you guys connect
0: did you approach him or kind of crazy universal forces kind of weird stuff to be honest like about th- before you know before i met jack um i got a call from someone at third man and it was just hey this is third men records so and so and we know about your bats and we thought it would be cool to make some kind of third men records themed war sticks for the just for the store which is very common for them to do right like mm-hmm. a lot of collaboration with a lot of the things they make and um that's the first inclination that First of all, I wasn't like... I absolutely knew who Jack was, and 100%, a lot of Jack's music was playing repetitively when I did Warstick Original Designs and all kinds of stuff, because I love to listen to music when I design, and I love to repeat what I listen to, so it almost is like, I can't hear it, but I can hear it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know, I didn't really understand... I didn't know a lot about Third Man Records was my point. It took me a minute to make the connection, you know? It wasn't like, oh, Jack White. It was like, oh, wait, Jack... Oh, like Jack White. Okay. (laughs) And then those conversations with these guys... I did go, Hey, um, I was just, I was like, who at third man, you know, knew about Warstick Cause that's weird to me. And he goes, Oh Jack. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? And it was absolutely maybe the first time in my life that I thought, Hey, you know what? I might've made a thing that I could be kind of comfortable calling art. Cause there was just an absolute appreciation of his, his appreciation for art. Well, then I met Ian Kinsler Literally, a couple weeks later, I met Ian Kinsler, who's our Major League Baseball player business partner, and then the weird Universal stuff started happening where Ian Kinsler plays in Detroit, and I'm meeting with him, and I'm telling him about Warstick, and Third Man Records was thinking about bats with us, and that doesn't happen to other companies, and he said, like, Jack White? And I said, yeah, like Jack White. And he goes, oh, I kind of know Jack a little bit. I met him a couple times because he's a huge Detroit Tigers fan and baseball fan, and I just kind of looked at him like, "Huh?" and I kind of was joking like, "Hey, well, why don't we make Jack like the big investor?" And he looked at me, and it was like one of those moments of like, it was literally like, fuck it, why not?"
4: You know, wait until you see the new collaboration between Jack White and Ian Kinsler. White, the Detroit-born musician and huge Tigers fan, and Kinsler formed an unlikely friendship last season, and then they decided to go into business together, making War Stick baseball bats. It all came together. Do you yeah. have any musical?
2: Zero. Yeah, I'm going to try to learn how to play the piano this offseason. My kids are going to maybe take piano lessons, so I'm going to jump in there with them and let them
0: know it's okay and take my chance at it. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I'm going to go for it.
2: And I like the fact that Inkens is going to try to play the piano. I, I share that same sentiment. You know, I'm, I'm learning how to play the guitar, so I understand being a baseball player, but yet wanting to have some musical background.
0: But to no expectation that would happen, and then called me the next day and he said do you want to go to Nashville next week <laughs> and <meet> Jack White <laughs> and and show him this and I was like yeah I do so it was weird I mean getting to see the third man aesthetic and everything and the three stripes and the two stripes was more of a it's weird because it's never been in like a competitive like hey you trying to steal my logo I'm like I don't know you trying to steal my logo <laughs> 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 and I always throw on him my you know my thing is like the least the most impact with the least amount of pixels and i'm like who wins (laughs) because mine's too you know and and we just mess with each other like that but it was weird it was we saw it more as just a sign like this whole thing everything was a sign that this is supposed to happen yeah so it was more that than anything you know it could have been the other i mean well a lot of people could have saw it as like hey this feels so close that it's making me uncomfortable but it was never like that it's it was like this feels so close that it maybe should work together you know, mm-hmm. yeah, is what did it was. Did you
1: ever, did he ever pull the table analogy on you? Like, hey, you can't, a table won't stand with two legs. Did he ever, did he ever try and, did he ever try and like fight oh, yeah. for three on his behalf against <laughs> you and
0: two? Is what I'm asking. He knows he'll lose. <laughs> I mean, we, me and Jack really do. We have this great relationship where we stand toe to toe and really enjoy. It's just like what baseball players do, Do do too. Jack could easily be an athlete because what you do is you stand toe-to-toe with guys and you just go at each other for fun <laughs> and see who wins. And, like, we—Jack is amazingly good at that, and um, I am, too, so— I don't know maybe that's why it works so yeah he'll say anything to me and i'll say anything to him and (laughs) and it just there's a lot of mutual respect as far as i know we met for maybe three hours that first day me ian and jack and it just kept going on and on and on and i think uh uh, ben blackwell was there and um they were eventually all like y'all get a room because it was just (laughs) one of these things where like we didn't want to stop talking about it and jack said something like he knew why we were there and what this is about and he just said look I don't invest in anything. Mm-hmm. I self-fund everything. And the reality is he's in a place to do that. He doesn't need investors. Right. And in this, it was just this crossover into this completely different world that we all happen to appreciate, which for me and him, it's the crossover of design and baseball. And the dude just really loves baseball. So the reality is, he said, but I would absolutely love to be a part of this and invest in it.
1: I think it surprised a lot. The announcement surprised a lot oh, of the yeah. fans. It surprised us. I mean, because... We were sitting around waiting for another album, and it's like now Jack's in the business of baseball. And we were like, what? Did it surprise you, yeah. or was it more of like, oh yeah? Why wouldn't he do this? Yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> I mean, it seems like you guys became well, real fast friends. Absolutely. I I was more surprised is how natural it all felt, but it didn't. So in that, in the context of saying that, everything felt right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when I step back outside of it and think, just like everybody else, why would he do this? It doesn't make sense. But at the same time, it makes sense when you know what he's about. He wants to be involved in what he cares about. He doesn't spend any time doing anything he's not interested in. So, right, right. I can't tell you why he's so fascinated by baseball, but it's weird. A lot of musicians seem to be. You know, we've got you know Eddie Vedder just wears the battle shirt as his favorite shirt, and there's and he That's loves awesome. the Cubs. And there, there's a, something about the aesthetic of baseball, maybe. And it's just quirky and weird enough. And- it makes perfect sense that musicians would be drawn to that. We
1: know uh, Pokey Lafarge is a huge... Cubs fan, oh, i you know, he's another one, dude. you
0: know, so they the list goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Love that guy, man. It's like meeting someone out of night I'm like, Did you just come here from nineteen thirty two, Pokey? And <laughs> yeah. and you look at him and you're like, How did you pull this off? Like it's like crazy. <laughs> I mean to talk about original personality, man, but dude, he knows more about baseball than I do. Yeah. Like he will yeah. if I sat down with Pokey and got into any argument about what team's going where and this, he would destroy me. Now <laughs> could I kick it? <laughs> on the baseball field absolutely <laughs> but yeah he as far as baseball knowledge I mean dude oh my god it's unbelievable Let's talk a little bit about
1: how, Warstick uh, up and running. Jack and Ian have joined. You have sort of the launch. You started to get things ready. There's an awesome photo shoot that you and Ian and Jack did that was shot by David Swanson, who's a, an oft collaborator with Jack and Third Man. That looked like a lot of fun. Can you tell us uh, how many re- It's like you guys with baseball bats destroying vinyl. How many vinyl records were destroyed that day? As few as possible
0: because it was kind of <laughs> sacrilegious. And, were they like... Um, well, were they, what records were they? Were I would they say, like, I, I think, think we only actually, I think we only broke four. Because there was one kind of retake that happened. I won't tell you who did it, but <laughs> I think we managed to go three out of four. We only broke four <laughs> records. And the thing was, I it turned out my record, though, was a Neil Young record. And no one told me what record I was oh, busting. No. I didn't think about it. And then I was like, oh, my God, I'm so... Like I yeah. just broke a Neil Young record. Like that's not no cool, the man. harvest. So that's like not my the harvest. Yeah, I was like I was like that's that's like a big deal to me. That's not cool. That's that's my guy. No, oh man. And anyway, but it was cool. Like it was really um, one of my a guy named Clark Harris who is one of our um, you know our employees who doesn't do anything with regard to creativity just was on the spot with it and he said hey what if you know mm. it's like what if we. Took records and threw them up and break them out. And, you know, it's one of those things for a minute. It's like, no, I can't do that. And then we thought, oh, yeah, we, maybe we could not do that. And then it just went from there. And then <laughs> and then David kind of, you know, then, of course, David gets in his hands and turns it into some beautiful art, you know. Sure. And he's just like that, too, man. David's, David's also the best. Like, that's what's so striking to me about this whole thing is mostly been the family of people and how much love there is between people. And just that's a happy place, man. The day I went to Third Man Records... It's the thing that struck me was, because I've been in a lot of business environments and it was like, man, these all these people really like each other. This is weird. Like, this is, is this right? Uh,
1: Battle Cry. This mm. is the single released last year, pseudo-conjunction with the second record store day later in the year. Battle Cry. Mm. It was an all-instrumental song by Jack. It was a huge surprise for us, because mm-hmm. it just for for fans, because it just kind of dropped out of the clear blue sky after kind of a you know Jack's been in somewhat of a Jack drought. We've been calling it. He hasn't he hasn't <laughs> released an album sort of proper in a little while and and mm-hmm. so it, it, we were like, whoa, is this the new album? And it was it turned out to be in association with a marketing campaign for Warstick, and I could not think of a more compelling battle cry than that song for you guys to use. Can you tell us a little bit about how that promotion came about? Do you think Jack was aware that people, you know, what people would think or does he even care about that kind of thing? And, you know, like, oh, yeah, tell, I mean, tell
0: us a little bit about Battle Cry. I I mean, the way it came about was that I knew when we got the investment that one of the things I really, really wanted to do was create a quote unquote film slash commercial. There was no way to express the emotion of really what I felt inside that Warstick was about without creating something like that. Right. Mm-hmm, right. And I was like, that's and I had gone, you know, I had this. I went to film school and I just really never, I, you know, then I started graphic design and kind of left it behind. So I was like, this is what a lot of this investment is about, is getting the opportunity to make more art. But then for the purpose of making the brand embellish it and and tell people what it's really about. And he, from the get go, agreed that we should do that. So it was really through just working on the ideas and script for the film and how that would go that we got to the point where like, well, it needs something in the background in the audio realm. And I'm like absolutely staying away from the idea of ever asking him to do something like that. And (laughs) and and it just was in the middle of sitting there with the production film crew guys and talking about getting those ideas tangible the idea for the film was starting to really become concrete and he just goes man i i would love to score music for this and everybody went "Ah." (laughs) uh what no and it's purely i don't it it was really just out of like i think the development of the film in him going i want to be a part of this because it's cool is all that there is to it
2: they took that a step further this off season when they got together and made a film that explores the deep recesses of a hitter's mind. It's heavy stuff. Out of that was born a new walk-up sign. Walk-up sign, that, a song that White created just for Kinsler. Honestly, it's it's uh, it's been an unbelievable experience to be part of this group, you know, with Ben and, and Jack. Um, you know, the group at Warstick. Just just what we've done in, sh- in such a short period of time is. It's been just so fun to be a part of. I never imagined that this would happen. Uh, I never imagined me and Jack would partner in something like this. And, but it's all just kind of worked together really seamlessly. And um, now I have Jack White writing walkout songs for me. So, you know, I, I'm not complaining at all.
1: It was a way of him from him diverting me because I was giving him a lot of three in the morning. I would call him and give him tips on how to bat
4: the next game. And, and then I was, doing no I was telling him, so. him to move his fingers a little bit, <laughs> get a different note. all, all came together.
0: It's absolutely cool for us. And you know, from a business perspective, is it's like well, obviously more people will see the thing if if you're doing the music and um, and then I just made him promise to do it and I said we all heard what you said <laughs> so anyway, and then and I didn't really know if he would ever do it and then it got to the point where one day he just said hey um next week I'm gonna work on the I got an I got some ideas and I'm gonna work on that and I was like really and I just again just kind of let him if he's gonna do it he's gonna do it and then of course when he when he sent it to me, just like anything, I had no expectation for what it would be like, and I had to listen to it. Like it was so shocking to hear, because how could I ever imagine what it was going to be? Yeah, you know. Um, right. It, and then, and then I'm thinking I have to tell him what I think about this, which <laughs> is, is like the worst job in the world. <laughs> 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 Did he send you a demo or the finished product? He sent me like a he sent me like a digital, like an MP3. Okay. Just this rough track of it, you know, and, and not the final version, but it was like. It was so like its own thing. It was so strong, right? That oh yeah, this goes with the film, and so I threw it into like the Adobe Premiere just to rough it in. And just the instant that I saw the two things together, I was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> this is it. And then, and then I was able to go, I love it because it wasn't that I didn't love it. I just was like, you know, you're critical. You're like, I don't know, does this work together with this? Holy, sh-. and I just had to see. And I was like, without even like making it work, it was like, oh man, this is insane. And then it became. In the editing process, in the final edit, really became building on mm-hmm. it. Right? It really provided the momentum and the flow of the the way that we piece together the linear story of the film. So again, just just naturally kind of worked. And then what's crazy is, of course, you know, I was at a hockey game last night, the Dallas Stars game, and with Ian, and you know, sure enough, Battle Cry comes on in the hockey arena, and the hockey fans Whoa, nice. freaking love it, man. And it's very much, it's become more of anything a hockey. Staple. It's becoming more and more of a hockey staple now, which is super yeah. cool. And it fits because it's so driving and like pumps you out. Awesome. So and that's cool. I mean, again, for Jack, that's what it is, is to see where these things go. Right. And so, um, you know, as far as his fans and stuff, he's always I think it's like anybody else. It's the balance of what do the fans want. But if the fans told you what they want and you just did it, it wouldn't be the good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. not how it happens. But it's like I'm making this for you and all that. And it was a weird thing. I mean, it had to be thought about. They definitely thought hard about how to position what it was so that it wasn't confusing more than anything. It's like, hey, this is for sure. this film. This is for this thing. This isn't Jack White doing solo music and me telling you this is my new solo kind of style. That's not what this This is just a special project. And so the main thought went into just making sure that it was positioned like that. And which right. we were obviously very sensitive to and it's a score for a film. But oh by the way, it's cool enough that it stands alone and has this use in arenas now. Yeah. So
1: Yeah. The Battle Cry demo. Mm-hmm. Was that an acoustic guitar? Or was that a an electric thing or was that just him?
0: No, it was the whole band, man. I think it I think oh, really? as Jack does. The band the band probably showed up and Jack's like, Hey, I got this little thing, let's do this and it just happened and yeah, the demo I got was Felt like a finish to me. <laughs> like all electric, everything. You realize you have a uh, you have a collector's
1: item on your computer right now. You realize this? Yes. Where?
0: No no no, not like physically oh, on oh, your computer. Like the, the demo I? itself. Oh, I, I deleted it. I don't know what you're yeah, talking no. about. I you don't, del- yeah. I, I didn't even think about that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um man.
1: No, I, I, mean, I that that wasn't to imply you should send it anywhere. I was just simply saying you have this piece of awesome that uh, that
0: is just for you that must that must feel great well i'll keep that as an insurance card i probably don't even know where it is to be honest with you yeah (laughs) because it you know things just exploded into eight versions of this and he kept working on it to refine it you know and he's hearing these details that i'm like okay and (laughs) and he definitely man i mean he was super serious about how we were using you know the the fine details of what cut hit what beat Mm -hmm. you know yeah that was not to be taken lightly yeah you know the editors had to live with me looking over them going you know the story this part it's got to go here he has to do this before he does that in the film and this is what you do and the people around you can either take you when you're doing that or not (laughs) yeah Oh, and then, you know, you're passing over the fact that he actually agreed to be in the film was actually probably, to me, almost, not the bigger deal, but, like, you know, that's a huge deal. Yeah. He wasn't originally written into the story, but there was something missing in the story. He was kind of the troublemaker. And we were like, this guy's driven by something bad, but we don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And and then it kind of, you know, that was a very organic thing between the different parties talking about we need a catalyst that kind of drives and forces this guy. And it's funny because it was like, oh, you know, like a dark, shadowy figure, um... And this, and it was like, it kind of was telling us like, well, dark shadowy figure sounds like Jack and, (laughs) you know, and we had to approach him about it with very, we did approach him about that. You know, he didn't want it to be about him. Right. That's so much. This isn't, he didn't want it to be about him. I said, look, I don't, I don't want it to be you either, man, but I need this character and you're perfect for this character and we don't even have to really see your face for it to work but people will know it to you and that will help again get more eyes on it because it'll be more interesting you know and all the characters are real things like ian's a real person a real character it's all surreal but ian's a real person Josh collins is a real native activist in the real world and a badass dude who played the warrior hunter guy mm-hmm. and then jack's a real mm-hmm. guy so I was like, I don't want to get a fake actor, man. I want a real. That's the another layer that I liked about it. Yeah, you know. I basically wrote an epic novel, two-hour movie, right? <laughs> and then, <laughs> as I tend to do, I and then it's kind of like refining that down, and then it got down to a smaller idea that was more doable and more doable until I got to the point where it's eighty percent there of what I wanted to do, and then starting to write out the. Narrative of what it was and how it would work. But I'm not a film guy anymore that has that capability and that technology. So I reached out to actually, we had kind of three directors really. I was representing Warstick. Uh, My buddy uh, Sterling Harjo, who's a native filmmaker, was representing, making sure the native part was authentically done, but also merging it into the sports world through his eyes. And then Farm League from California, who does a lot of more sports and stuff like that. And I was like, I got to smash these things together, but then make us work together, which is hard. Mm -hmm. When you have three directors on a project, it can get tense. (laughs) But it really was like, it was a battle in a way because it made it what it was. And as much as it was hard, we all love what it turned into, you know? So, and I just knew this has to get way bigger than me. We knew at the end of the day, what we're doing, we're highlighting what our brand's about. And we're also bringing awareness to something that we want to point to. We thought about every little detail in how we did it. I mean, the bow and arrow in that film, actually I have it right here. This is the arrow from oh, the shit. film. Nice. Oh, wow. Um, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Where's this thing?
1: Is that the one from the album cover, uh, the single cover?
0: Yeah, that's actually the one in the cover and Whoa. everything. What? Um, this is that's made by so cool. Yeah. This is made by a Cherokee kid that lives in Oklahoma named Mason Gray. And Sterling knew him and everything had to be. It wasn't like, let's find this on eBay. It's like, this is really made by him, which led to... Um, now when we introduce a new major league player, we have these. These are like our brand. This is a new one that Mason makes now with the Eagle Feathers. We introduce ourselves to a major league player by like sending a box to them, with a, which they think is going to be a bat, but they open it up and it's a freaking arrow. And it's basically, and it'll say like, time to hunt. And it's shocking to them. And they're looking like, <laughs> <laughs> holy s And... But, you know, so, I mean, that's the thing is that one idea leads to another and then going for it, you know? Yeah, so.
1: that's awesome. I'm not sure if I was to open a package and find an arrow it's a time to hunt in it, my th- my first call, I think, would be to the police. But, um...
0: <laughs> well, wait till we get real money. Wait till we really big, like, that box is going to, like, you know, we joke about it all the time, like, what that box is going to be in 2023 <laughs> where you open it up and it's, like, Jack's hologram pops out <laughs> and, like, punches you in the face. I mean, it's going to be just crazy, you know? Like, it's... <laughs> You only get one chance to make a first impression. Yeah, that's a hell of a branding <laughs> so, yeah. uh, idea. I love Here's it. it. Is the decapitated head of one of your enemies the first thing they <laughs> they expect to see is a bat? So we basically say <laughs> we're getting we're getting beyond that. We're like, well, you um, you need it you need it use our back because you've got that hunter's mentality that focus and we only approach guys that are naturally like that like and then they become good representations of what we're trying to do
1: as Fats Kaplan told us when we spoke with Fats he said uh, in Don Quixote like fashion Jack is trying to create mystery in a world wherein it is impossible to do so and it sounds like you are right on that same page as adding some mystery some whimsy some Mm -hmm. intrigue into uh, into your dealings Is, is there really cool effective
0: tool yeah, yeah it's the obvious thing in branding to me but you know well there you go um, <laughs> Create mystery just, and intrigue just, therefore interest so.
1: so you're expanding I just uh, sort of lastly here I just wanted to talk about mm-hmm. the shop you're opening up the Warstick HQ which is opening up in Deep Elm Texas uh, it's mm-hmm. Warstick's first brick and mortar and my first thought is that it would sort of be like third man records store, but for baseball equipment. But what can fans and customers expect from the shop experience? What can you tell us? what are you
0: still developing? Is that We've always known what the components are, but you know and in, in how they fit together and and, and what are the, what's the actual aesthetic and all that? I mean, that's what we're working on now. The, I sat down with the floor plan after we got the building and in a couple hours had laid out the components of how they could work together and it just came together very naturally but it's meant to be the experience of it's based on I mean our core audience is guys that play baseball now other people buy our bats that don't play baseball and that's maybe the 20% of it but the 80% is um you know maybe it's a 16 year old kid that wants to come in he'll come in most likely with a parent. And he's going to get greeted at the door by a rather badass gentleman with a large beard who can you know, <laughs> a real, you know, a guy that is just... He's going to get greeted, like, maybe like a guy that maybe is, like, positioned as a fit master. But his job is to... He's going to take dad in, get dad comfortable and say, hey, we've got a little lounge here where you can watch sports and hang and, and have a have a beverage and stuff. And we're going to take care of your kid. But it's complete personal attention where he's got an appointment. We had a parking spot reserved for him. He comes in. We take this kid into the cage and we just watch him hit. And there's this thing in baseball where it's like, oh, well, you're 5'10 and 160. You should, you should swing a WS 243, 33 inch 31. And the reality is it's not like that. It's like, what's this kid's swing style and who's he trying to be? So therefore, what bat fits and complements that swing style? So it's very personal. It's it's like getting fitted for a suit. Like it's not just about the guy's size. It's like what's his personality and that stuff and that's what's really fun that's the driving force behind the brick and mortar is that we can't do that on a website you know yeah and then you get into actually have a
1: batting cage in there
0: oh man we're trying to build the world's single coolest batting cage ever at night people would train there as well um and you know it'll be a place for our major league guys to come in in the off season and work out and stuff like that and then you'll be able to see into that window um so this is it's a multi-use kind of thing and then Take the kid through the design process, take him through getting to where he orders bats. And ultimately, yeah, we're selling stuff. And then, you know, you've got the lifestyle side of the store with all the great T-shirts and hats. And um, we're developing new things for that that will be a driving force. And Jack has Jack's experience with Third Man was as much as anything that when you have that store out front, it drives the creative behind. It, It motivates you to want to put more incredible stuff in there. And that's absolutely true. So, I mean, think about me. I mean, talk about it asshole. I get to design my own products and design the store in which they go and the boxes that they go in and the bags you walk out with and all that. I mean, it's, I, I couldn't ask for more. I mean, to be honest with you, like, I'm very grateful for that, you know? And then on this, the cool thing with the building is this is the tangible thing where I think Jack will absolutely come through the most, right? Because we have mm-hmm. license to do it. You know, there's a studio and there's warehouse and there's a place where we paint the bats and all that kind of stuff where you can see kind of more behind the scenes process. And then there's a super secret kind of private lounge underneath in the basement, kind of like a speakeasy and it's secret, I can't tell not you sure. about All it. right, so, I heard nothing. Wow. <laughs> that's, but that's there too. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, it does sound I, really, yeah, wow. I mean, I, uh, it better be awesome oh. because baseball's not a big enough market to even warrant doing a retail store. There's not enough people that buy baseball bats. So it's going to have to be experiential to become a destination where even if you just like baseball, you got to see it. Yeah. But, I, you know, and that yeah. for us is that's what it's got to be.
1: We'll keep getting the word out, and you guys keep doing what you're doing. And thank you again. We're going to uh, we're going to get back to the show, James. That say. sounds
0: great. Thanks. All right, man, see you guys down the road.
1: Boy, that was great. And I wish I had a robot co-host here to help me push us along into the very next segment which is another fantastic interview of Mr. Tom Potter from the Dirt Bombs and Bantam Rooster. And just uh, he's done so much and he's incredible and had so much to tell us. So let's get to Tom Potter. We would like to welcome a very special guest this week. We are thrilled to be talking here
4: with Tom Potter, musician, Detroit native are you from detroit no no actually well actually i was born in detroit i was born just outside of detroit in a little suburb uh, called oak park back in the late 60s my old man was a police officer there and then uh but then about 72 or so i think we moved to beautiful charlotte michigan which you've never heard of okay it's spelled like charlotte but we call it charlotte Because we're from Michigan and we mispronounce all
1: that shit. Sounds perfectly sane. Yeah,
4: yeah. And that's, that's pretty much where I grew up. So let's call you a lifelong Michigander. Would that be fair? Yes, I am a born Michigander. A man of the mitten.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Skipping ahead here a little bit to 89, Just Say No is the first release I could find from you that you were playing on. Is that the first band you sat in on and played with, or was there other stuff in the interim there?
4: That was just the first band that released something, so... Okay. I think, okay. Uh, you know, I was in... I was in the bunch of other bands, basically from like about age 15, 16. I was in a whole bunch of bands. But just so you know, I got into and I was 17 or 18. But all the other guys in the band were all 10 years older than me. And, you know, they'd been in bands like the Meatmen and the Fix and all these, mm-hmm. you know, Lansing hardcore bands, Violent Apathy and stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, they're kind of my heroes. And they're all 10 years older than me. So basically, sure. basically they just get me <laughs> up and just watch me go. <laughs>
3: Danger! I love the thunder. I love risk danger. I love the thunder.
4: car, and i just be, I'd just, you know, jumbled around like some sort of idiot. So you got thrown into the deep end. It sounds like, yeah, so. yeah. They had a rule, you know, like you couldn't do. You had to do more than one drug at a time.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: so you and Jim Diamond
1: have something in common. When we talked to Jim, he was telling us some interesting stories about this crazy ass wake-up juice concoction he had. It was like pharmaceutical caffeine and whiskey and like (laughs) (laughs) it sounded like he was just getting wound up like a top or something and then flung out onto the stage you guys had the equivalent of a two-drink minimum for just drugs of all sorts (laughs) um Some of your early work includes design and layout for some bands, like Kill Devil Kill and Fireworks. Did you have ambitions to do album art, or did you just kind of fall into that?
4: I kind of fell into it, you know. I was in the band, but also I'd been an art major at Michigan State, which I don't recommend doing. <laughs> it's like majoring in art at your favorite business college. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I also accidentally did a cover for the Soul Dad Brothers single on Human Fly because a friend of mine worked at the print shop where they were printing up the covers for that stuff. And he loaned me the Soul Dad Brothers single
0: so I could
4: listen to it, and then I lost it. Well, what we didn't know is that it was the original artwork was the cover for that single. So he could just copy it off later. So basically, we managed to lose the artwork. (laughs) So basically, I just whipped something out real quick for that. So I didn't credit myself on that one either. I can credit myself with losing the shit, but <laughs> but yeah. And then and, and then like. Oh. I think I'm like this might have been like four or five years later. I pull out like I don't know like a Howling Wolf record or something, and Bing, that single just fell out of it. Like I'm like, oh, there it is. I I, <laughs> I gave it back to Johnny and Ben. I'm like, Ooh, sorry. Here's <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, you
1: I love it when that happens.
4: <laughs> oh, wasn't sold out, brothers. Sorry, wasn't sold out, brothers. Henry and June. It was their pre-sold out oh, brothers, okay. okay, close enough. Let's talk a little bit about the formation of
1: Bantam Rooster. How did you and Eric link up originally?
4: His girlfriend and my girlfriend at the time worked together and... And that old chestnut, sure. <laughs> They're like, you know, and my girlfriend's like, oh, well, Eric plays drums. I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever you say, you know. It's like somebody saying, like, oh yeah, my grandma has records, you know. <laughs> my friend plays drums. It's like, you know, I don't want to meet this person, but uh, but I wound up I hung out with him, and you know, we shared a love for uh, you know, old John Woo movies and stuff like that. Actually, we weren't old then, I guess. So then, you know, then we just started playing together. He was playing drums at the time in the band called Gravatar. Are. Uh-huh. it was like a this i don't know if you call him noise band i guess i don't know some sort of yeah i mean it was pretty damn noisy
1: i love the name though yeah
4: and that was with harold richardson who plays he plays guitar for negative approach and pretty much every other band that john brandon has going right now (laughs) and i think they're all pretty much the same band aren't they They just giving different names that seems to be the detroit way yeah (laughs) but yeah that was you know so we met we were it was cool we were hanging out and stuff and then uh and we just like Kill Devil Hill broke up, and and John Olson had suggested that he and I do a two piece, and I remember being like, oh no, that's a that's a horrible idea. I'm not going to do that. And then, like three <laughs> months later, Eric and I are doing a two piece. Like, oh. <laughs> but um, I don't know. We just started playing together. Originally, we were just going to, you know, we we're going to write some song, get a bass player, maybe another guitar player. But everything just kind of worked really well because we were really writing the songs to be just the two of us anyway. So. Sure, we just kind of stuck with that, you know. it's was like, so just, you know, and it's it's so much easier only having two guys. You don't have that dude in the band. It's like, oh, I got to work at Seven Eleven that night. I can't. Do the show, you, know?
1: you have to write a song for some uh, person who has no songwriting or whatever experience just All because right. they want to sing something. Yeah.
4: basically what we do is we would record everything on a four track and then we would run it out of the four track into like a practice sample the distortion turned up and then re record it onto the four track so that way everything was like you know like coming at you super distorted and stuff and we we did some of that with the first record because that's with the deal me in because that was like you know we're like hey jim this is how we did it (laughs) (laughs) stuff like this I'd I'd worked with Jim a couple times before, although um in stuff, and and he and I had become friends at that point. Like, let's see, yeah, because it was after he moved back from Austin. Before he moved to Austin. Back when I was I was living in East Lansing, so was he, and he was doing the way outs and sh.
3: Right, 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 right.
4: And we always refer to those guys like as the oh, those rockabilly guys, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, but I'd always go see the way outs because I always got laid every time I go to see them. So, you know, so it was it was all right, but but it, they were kind of more. You know, at the time, I mean, I, I like them, you know, appreciate them a lot now, but they're kind of more, you know, more than garagey. They were more poppy, you know. They're doing like covering like yeah. like Romeo and Juliet and stuff like that, you know. It's sure, typical sure. Diamond, anyways. Oh, hey, let's play Romeo and Juliet. Oh, that's my. That's yeah. a, if you want to impersonate <laughs> hey, Jim Diamond, you just talk like Top Cat, by the way. So, <laughs> I'm I'm Jim Diamond. <laughs> oh, that's <I> fucked <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So those first few Bantam singles, the 7-inches, were released on Crypt, and then it looks like you had one on Flying Bomb sort of all around that ninety-six, yeah. ninety-seven era... Yeah. I have to talk about Flying Bomb's Christmas surprise package that you guys were a part of. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because there's a song called Let's Just F*** For Christmas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I just, I had to bring that up because there's no other opportunity I can bring this up in... in um... <laughs>
4: So, how was that? <laughs> oh, that was fun. I mean, you know, it was basically, we just did it at Diamond Studio. I mean, I'm on the Dirt Bombs track for the one that we did, too, I think, year last Christmas.
3: Oh, nice. I'm
4: trying to think. I think there's one other one that I'm on, just as so I could guess. But yeah, it was like a. I don't know. They wanted a Christmas song, and I was like, "Oh, let's, let's keep it simple." I mean, what do I really want for? I just want to f- for Christmas, so let's just do that, you know. <laughs> it's pretty punk rock sentiment. Yeah, cool. you know, and there's a, there's a lot of Christmas double entendre you can work in there and everything. So,
1: right, candy canes, ho ho ho, we got it.
4: <laughs> yeah. The song itself is only like two notes. It's only two chords, anyways. I I probably wrote it in like two minutes. After. I think we. we came up with the idea we played it through like once or twice and then recorded it and then jim added the little keyboard like nah, 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 and we we're like oh that sounds great <laughs> cool all right i <laughs> <laughs> we'll always found it like the less thought and faster you put something out like you put something together the better it is i don't know people like yeah it yeah, yeah. said first thought best thought right
1: <laughs> but uh, i mean do you want to talk for, i guess first of all a little bit about how you wound up joining the Dirt Bombs, although it seems like the Dirt Bombs were kind of just this weird musical collective that everyone was sort of an unofficial part of at one point yeah. or
4: another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Dirt Bombs were kind of like, because um, I used to go see them all the time. This isn't even before Jim was in the band or whatever. I mean, he joined just a little bit before I did, but before yeah. that, he, you know, the band that was on the Horn Dog Fest records, Those they played quite yeah. a bit. So I'd go see them all the time. And they had uh, a friend of mine, Wolf. He does, he, yeah. well, he did all the band of rooster photos and he's uh, done every touch and go band photos, I think, and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, E Wolf is playing drums with them then and stuff. So I'd always go hang out and see him and everything. I, they were freaking great. I don't remember what the mixes, you know, what happened, but suddenly there was hardly anybody left in the band. And then Diamond joined the band and then Ben Blackwell suggested a mick that I should join you know and I'm like I'm like all right you know and I'm like cool I'll you know and I was at that time Banner I mean, Rooster was doing good you know we were on so we were on tour a lot anyways but I was like oh I could do the Dirt Bombs because the Dirt Bombs don't really like tour or anything you know it's like it's cool kind of a you know it'll be a little more high profile product but I won't really have to tour or anything and then we recorded Ultra Gride and Black and everybody loved that yeah. damn record and so suddenly then I'm like between Banner Rooster and Dirt Bombs I was on tour like eight months out of the year for like a couple years and
1: you brought up Ben Blackwell for the Dirt bombs Now, I have a question real quick. What was the dynamic like with him in the group? He seemed kind of timid compared to the rest of y'all.
4: Well, I mean, he was a, he was a child, you know. <laughs> he, was a, he was a youth, you know. I mean, he, he was like, you know, I mean, I think when he first joined the band, I think it might have been 17 or so. And he'd always been the kid anyways. Like, he was Jack White's nephew, and he didn't drink, yeah. and he always behaved himself. So so a lot of, you know, like the gold dollar would usually let him in. You know, he'd have to sit behind the merch booth or something, but they'd usually let him in. So we're just like, oh, the kid's here, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, and so he was just always the kid. I taught him how to shave, for Christ's sake. So <laughs> we, went, we went to we get an electric razor. The first time we, we went to the U.K., <laughs> he couldn't plug his razor in. He couldn't plug his electric razor in. So I'm like, okay, Ben, well, this is how the grown-ups do it.
1: Like, you know. <laughs> hey, like, like that scene in A Hard Day's Night, you just, art is imitated life. That is amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was either you or Pat Pantano. I can't remember exactly who said it, but you guys were reading an article about the White Stripes, and one of you said, like, yeah, I ran out of gas trying to buy this magazine. And <laughs> I was like, ah,
3: right, right, in front in front of, of, right in front of, of Ben. ben. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> He's so impressionable.
4: <laughs> So. We had dirt bombs when we go on tour um, for the longest time, U.S. and Europe and stuff. We'd have our merch table sign. It would be, you know, LPs this much, T-shirts this much. Questions about the white stripes, five dollars. <laughs> you know, it's just like, all right. Yeah. You know? Do you take PayPal or Venmo? <laughs> or-
1: <laughs> well, uh, to get to your point of uh, five dollars per white stripes question. Um- <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Did your guys' paths cross often, you and Jack? Yeah, yeah, cool. absolutely.
4: You know, Detroit at that time, I mean, before, like, the White Stripes blew up and stuff, and everybody realized that there was all this going on, it was kind of like the same hundred people or so coming out to all the shows and playing in all the bands and everything. So, yeah, we'd always hang out. We used to go down to the Magic Stick and, other the Magic Stick, the bowling alley down there. And uh, Sunday Night's co, who replaced me in the Dirt Bomb, she bartended. We'd go down there and drink. Mm. And it'd be, like, Jack and Dave Buick and, uh, you know, a bunch of other people and and stuff. You know, it's always... But, yeah, it was kind of, like, more, like, generally. Because, of course, I'm, you know, I was also married at the time. Still am.
1: Congratulations.
3: Yeah, thanks.
4: But, yeah, so, you know, so most of my friends were... You know, they were bar friends, so you know. But it was really like you know, because you know, I'm always like, oh, I only drink in social situations, but every social situation I'm in involves drinking. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so you know, so it'd always be, you know, it'd usually be at the bar or at a show or whatever and stuff. And you know, we we played with the White Stripes quite a bit, you know, back then too, and everything. My it was funny because my wife was. We were just talking about, you know, the white stripes because, of course, this interview coming up. And she just got a (laughs) – this is one day or this is like a couple weeks ago I go out to the mailbox, and there's like a record box out there. I'm like, oh, shit, I don't remember ordering anything. Hell, and I look down, and it's got her name on it, and it was for the third man. And I'm like, I come in, and I'm like, what the hell? I'm the only one that's allowed to get records in this house. And it was that live, the third man sent her that live box set um, oh, cool. from Detroit with the three records. Because one, yeah. Yeah, one of them was recorded at the gold dollar, and she she yeah. my wife Katie used to be the door girl at the gold dollar. So
3: Oh, wow. Oh, That's awesome. Yeah,
4: so it's like, so I'm like, like, oh, well, okay, I guess you're cool now.
3: (laughs) I can't wait till you try to come back, girl. Things that don't work out for you. with girls.
1: That's a really cool set, actually. That that's yeah. yeah. So, did you bowl while <laughs>
4: while you were down there with your bar friends? Um, there was like a bowling league kind of thing with all of us, but I I seem to remember. I don't even know if I was actually ever actually on a team because you could always count on sh- going down there and some you know there's like at least five people that didn't show up. So you'd be like, hey, can you yeah. bowl with us?" You know. So I don't think I you know, and I I don't think Jack was actually on a team either. But I think he did do the I think he did the softball. Mm-hmm. There was also a regular Sunday softball thing, which I I think I went to once, but I just got drunk, so you know. (laughs) I was like, dude, I can get drunk and be indoors. Why am I doing this? Like, Jesus. You know, Jack and I cross paths all the time. Actually, I I probably hung out with Meg more so than Jack, just because she's a little better drinker than he is, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't surprise me. Wasn't she a bartender at some point? Yeah, she used to, She bartended, I think, at the upstairs, the Magic Dick, which is upstairs from the Garden Bowl. And then yeah. she also bartended out at this place out in Royal Oak called Memphis Smoke, which is like hmm. a kind of okay bar place and stuff. But she bartended out there with... uh Corey Martin, who was the, he was the drummer for Wild Bunch at the time, but they became Electric mm. Six. And we'd go out there on Monday nights because they just give us booze for free. <laughs> 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 we are just like, yeah, all right, well, let's go, you know? Like, okay, cool.
1: What kind of a drunk was Meg? Was she a loud drunk? Was she an angry drunk? Was she no. a happy drunk?
4: No, Meg's a, you know, she's a pretty shy person. She's pretty reclusive, even, you know, even in public, or at least back then. I haven't seen her in a long time. But she loves, you know, well, you, you know, you get her talking, she loves to talk, you, you know, and stuff, and, and she's a good conversationalist and everything. But, but yeah, I, I don't remember seeing her necessarily too aggressive. There was one time the Dirt <laughs> there one time with Durbouts, we were on tour, we were in England, somewhere in London, I think. And, <laughs> and uh, suddenly, like, I'm sitting there in the dressing room, like, we're just shooting the shit, and suddenly, like, this thinking, like, Giant foam fist just nails me in the back of my head, and I turn around, and it's Meg, and she's she was. We didn't even know she was in town, but she's got one of those incredible Hulk fists that made like that made like the incredible Hulk noise. And she just, and then she, I turn around, and she just nailed me in the face with it. And I'm like, you know, so yeah, I guess guess she could get a little aggressive, you know. Yeah, that was fun, and that was a really fun part too about. After, because you know, it's Banner Rooster. We did Europe; had done Europe a bunch, anyways, and already toured the U.S. and everything. And, and there were some of the other Detroit bands that were touring. But you know, after the White Stripes blew up and then Detroit kind of got that reputation,
0: then it was kind of right.
4: great because you know you could be somewhere like London or something and run into like, hey, I didn't know you were here. You know, it's like, right, and right. It's like, oh, the Soul Deep Brothers are playing across town. Sweet, you know, it's like, and that was always That's fun. Crazy. So
1: white stripes could have appeared as though they were more of a novelty to people who knew Jack and Meg personally at least that's the impression we get particularly because Meg was so inexperienced what were your first impressions of the stripes when you saw them did you look at that and go what the hell's Jack doing up there with Meg or did you look at that and go oh that's kind of interesting did it look was it like an art piece or was it just a curiosity what what were your impressions oh
4: well, no you know like when they first started playing it was <laughs> It was pretty great. There's, I mean, it, another thing my wife and I were talking about, and she re, she remembers better than I do because she wasn't drunk constantly, but um, <laughs> but she remembers, uh, you know, she remembers like a lot of people really didn't like the white stripes, and I do. I remember too, like a lot of people being like. Oh man, it's like Robert Plant fronting the Gories, and I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? You know, <laughs> or whatever is uh, it? But you know, a lot of times it'd be like just a couple of us up watching them when they are playing. usually, the demolition doll rods were like super early White Stripes supporters, and they'd always come out and see it would be right up front, so that was cool. I don't
3: know, that's a you're a liar. So I'm going down to St. James in Farbring to see my little baby she's such along on a train yeah she looks so good she calls something let her go let her go God bless her wherever she may be we want gonna search this whole wide world over
4: and hopefully, yeah. pretty encouraging, probably, and then uh, everything. But yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of interesting. And then it started bringing people over to their side and stuff. I think Jack got rid of that ridiculous haircut finally. And, yeah, that uh, <laughs> was kind of an unfortunate look, even for the time. Talk about the
1: high crop with like the red dye. Or yeah, whatever. but it was yeah. you
4: know it was fine you know but but uh, yeah i mean when you come down to it they had good songs you know and that's that's what that's what's going to keep them from being a novelty act or something like that is that they actually had really good songs well-written intelligent songs and so then people started to pick up on that
1: we often question things like that and uh e-wolf we are constantly going over who is that why yeah why that name? Who are you? <laughs> yeah,
4: Evil, then, yeah. Evil, I can tell you, is, uh, you know, his real name is I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you that or
1: <sighs> Okay, okay, but...
4: <laughs> we had our suspicions. Yeah, Evil had an early, uh, one of those early versions of the CD recorder... You know, it would be like back in, you know, 99 or so, know, it had the CD recorders. You could record on your CD. Amazing. <laughs> and shit, You know, and so he would just go and he would make copies of like, you know, like a Throbbing Gristle record and some other, you know, really raunchy you know right and just a whole bunch of like super loud industrial metal all this stuff and he'd make like five or six cds and then he'd go into like a best buy and, and load up the cd players with those cds and just blast them all <laughs> all time and That's walk awful. out
1: like. oh that is fantastic <laughs>
4: I remember, like, uh, actually hanging out at the Garden Bowl, and it was like uh, Jack asked me. It was when they were first talking to Sympathy, and I don't know right, what else right, they had right. going on at the time. But he was asked. He's like, "So, what do you think about Sympathy?" And I'm like, "And I hadn't done anything with them at that point, but you know, I knew John. I knew enough people that had worked with them. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's a good label. You're going to get great distribution and plenty of promo and press, but you're not going to make. You're not going to get any royalties." you know mm-hmm. so if that you know but but you know at this point though at that you know at that level usually you know you're lucky if you get any royalties anyways so, but i'm like so All the right. best thing is though is that you don't get any royalties but then anytime you call john and be like hey we need 50 records he's just going to send them to you and not charge you for them so yeah,
3: that's great yeah
4: so i remember i think oh. i think i kind of sold jack on sympathy for that because i was like yeah you're not going to make any money anyways you might as well get some free records so you can sell <laughs>
1: So with Sympathy, we're going to pivot to the Sympathetic Sounds of Detroit, which uh, you were involved in a number of those tracks. You want to tell us a little bit about what those sessions were like and how that went? Yeah, that was
4: that was fun. I remember Ben telling me, like, oh, yeah, Jack's going to do this Sympathetic Sounds of thing for Detroit, blah, blah, blah. He's going to start asking bands. And I'm like, like well, he knows he better fucking ask me, right? <laughs> like, <it's> like, the <laughs> next, like the next day, Jack calls up. He's like, hey, you want to come be on this record? I'm like, yeah, of course. But no, it was fun. It was a good time. I mean, basically Jack was just all set up in his house up in the second floor, I think of the house. Maybe it was the attic. I no, mean, I think it was the second floor, but uh but yeah, he was just yeah. all kind of set up like a couple different rooms and everything and you know, and he had a good sense of how the how everything sounded. It's like it's name was Jim Diamond, like, you know, he knew how that room sounded. <laughs> and so like basically you go and you'd be like put your drums over there Mike mic them up. Put your bass cabinet over there. And it was the same thing with Jack. Jack knew where everything should go to get the best sound for what you were doing and everything. And But yeah, it was a lot of fun because I can't remember. I think that one of them we were just showed up to do it like right after the Cobras had you know been there and so it's kind of fun I'm like hey you're on this record too cool you know but it was a lot of fun I remember that I remember uh, the Banner Rooster song I think I wrote that song like maybe the day before and I hadn't shown oh, it I love that. <laughs> at that point Mike Alonzo was playing drums with me and so we went in and before we started recording I'm like oh hey Mike I'll show you that song <laughs> so Mike and I started playing <laughs> the song and then like the second time we went through it Jack recorded it and then we're like okay cool we're done. <laughs> Jack was like, did you really just show him that song? I'm like, yeah, he's that good, man. He's that good a drummer, you know? I was like, <laughs> but yeah, Jack was pretty amazed that Mike could, like, learn it that fast. and But it's all, you know, play it that well. But Mike is a pretty badass drummer. Doing and then it even is, you know, he even did like some kind of production stuff because I remember uh, the solo on that song. He's like, Oh, you can't play the same guitar because it's going to lock you in with that same thing. So he had me play the solo, overdub the solo with one of his guitars. I can't remember it. And the people have asked me too, like, Was it the national? Was it this? I'm like, You know, I, it was a red one. I don't know, it was red.
1: Followed his color scheme. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was cool. You know, it's like, but. Was it decked out when you got in there with a lot of taxidermy
3: and shit? No, candy,
4: no, candy? that was, I think, that was, I mean, I think there, there were, there was a few, back then when we recorded, I, I mean, he might have had a few of the taxidermy things, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> I would say that back then, uh, you know, he might have had a squirrel or something. I don't know. I don't know. It was kind of more like a early '90s shabby chic '70s yeah. kind of thing, or something. I don't know. It was, it was cool. It was a cool house. I mean, to go in and he's got stuff like, oh, you know, what's the organ speaker that oscillates? He had one of those, but it was painted with candy stripes and stuff like. Oh, that.
3: oh, are you
1: talking about the? It's the the, the triple the triple tremolo tremolo
4: triple yeah. tremolo. Oh, so maybe yeah. But it was a cool, you know. It was a cool house. It was very Jack. I mean, I remember like being seeing the White Stripes at the Magic Bag, and this is after uh, the second album had come out or whatever. And mm-hmm. seeing them at the Magic Bag, which is out in the Detroit suburbs, out in Ferndale,
3: mm-hmm.
4: It's a it's a nice venue. But you don't want to like drink too much because you're going to get pulled over. You know, there's a rule in Detroit like you don't go north of eight mile. <laughs> Cause uh, right. then you get into the so sub- yeah you get into the suburbs and I'm like Ugh, it's gruesome um, and you're gonna get pulled over as long as you're in Detroit city limits you are like thinking you can do whatever you want you, know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you can drive down the street doing fifty five doing some blow and smoking a joint and drinking <laughs> a beer and they're probably not gonna get pulled over you gotta like kill somebody or do donuts on the mayor's lawn or something to get keep pulled over there so but yeah they we were playing at Ferndale and it was just like probably about the bazillion times. You know, it was probably like that. You know, I don't even know how many you know times it but they were playing. I was just like, man, this is going to be, you know, it's going to be huge. It's just going to be, a, it's going to be a big thing. You know, like I just had that feeling because I was just like, and seven they were already, you know, on their way up anyway. But I'm like, this is really going to be like way bigger than I thought it was going to be. You know, which it did turn out that way. You know, I was like. You had some interaction with another friend of the show, uh, Jarrett Coral, where Jarrett
1: was able to put out the Bantam Rooster 7-inch Tarantula, oh, which had, had co it. on it, too. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Jarrett and Jet Plastic Recordings?
4: Yeah, well, that single was supposed to come out in, like, I don't know, like 2000 or something. Right. <laughs> it was originally supposed to come out on Italy Records.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I'm not quite sure why it never got released, except that, you know, Dave Buick, I love the man. You know, you're familiar with Dave, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. As I say, you know, he manages the third man store in Detroit now, played bass for the Go and stuff. But yeah, as far as, you know, the record, his, him having Italy Records, I mean, it was a cool record label and stuff, but you'd go over to Dave's house and there'd be like orders stacked up from like three months prior, like on his table and stuff. So, <laughs> you know, he wasn't a real go getter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he was a real go bassist, but he wasn't a real it go. Just get never it just never got released. Like I was just, you know, it just never got released. And then uh, a couple years ago, then Jarrett sent me. I think it was the first time we talked or something. He was like, he was like, oh yeah, he's like, Dave was telling me about this single that never got released, and blah blah. blah. He goes, do you mind if I talk to Jim and see if these guys see if we can put it out? And I'm like, no, yeah, go ahead. You know. <laughs> to Jim and Jim still had copies of the recording mm. and I was like oh I wonder if I was really funny because I'm like oh because I, I had come up with the idea for the cover with co dresses school schoolgirl with the shotgun oh for some reason I thought that was really funny but um anyways <laughs> anyway so I'd come up with that idea so I was like oh it'd be cool to have that original artwork and so I'm sitting there and I'm like going through like all these zip drives old school zip drives you know the big old <laughs> fat ones and stuff and i'm like oh they gotta be on one of these and then i remember I'm like oh this is before this even existed it was before everything was all digital i'm like this...
1: it's on the seven and a half inch floppies
4: that's yeah so i just had to go <laughs> yeah. down to the basement and dig through a couple boxes and i found the original prints that we'd done <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that had been made and like then uh and then my buddy Tony and I laid out that cover from it. But yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, it was fun and it was, I, I liked that single. I mean, originally I did that. Like we kind of did that. We were doing, it was between, it was just after Mike had joined the band and we were getting ready to do an album, but I was like, Oh, we should go in and do some singles just to get you used to recording with Jim and I. Yeah. Cause we, Kind of work a little differently than a lot of other people and uh so we went in and we recorded three singles and uh and that was one of them and i had i had the idea to have Co come in and play on it because i really wanted to encourage her to like write and sing at the time, she mm-hmm. was just playing keyboards in uh, the Come Ons. And I was like, oh, oh you, you know, you could do so much more than that. So, I was, you know, that's what and the impetus was like. I not know. I'll have Coe come do something, you know, play on it and everything. And I knew she played bass. I'm like, why don't you come play bass? Write a song. You write a song for me to sing. I'll write a song for you to sing. And it'll be fun. It'll be a good time. And it was. it was a good time.
1: Nice. I want to thank you for your time, Real quick, do you want to talk about the formation
4: of Choke Chains? Oh, yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about what I'm doing now. Hey, that's a good yeah. Idea. yeah. yeah. <laughs> choke Chains is pretty, pretty freaking fun. When I moved over to this side, I'm, I live on the west side of Michigan now, like right on, on beautiful Lake Michigan. But it's kind of, like I said, I'm pretty isolated up here, you know. Where it's, it's not much for me where I live, but just i meet the, the old drummer from the Chinese Millionaires, who are a band that Bantam Rooster used to play with a lot back in the day. Mm-hmm. So finally we started doing some he and his wife singing. His wife's from Memphis, and she said, oh, I sang in the choir. I'm like, okay, cool. So, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, oh, you know, Memphis, Southern Baptist, was, you know, she'd probably really sing. And so we started to practice, and it turns out she was a Mormon. But no, but it was, it was fun. But from that, we got our bass player... <laughs> This guy, Chris Butler, we call him Chiz. That's his pet name. Uh, uh-huh. He had lived in Chicago. And I had met him and started playing with him. And they had moved up from Chicago. He and his wife had moved up to Chicago like a few years prior. And it turns out he played in like a couple bands. that band of Rooster used to play with all the time in Chicago. And uh, But they all wore masks. So I didn't really know it was him. Right. But he had also played in a band with the Chinese Millionaire's guitar player after that guy had moved to Chicago. So we got Chiz and then Wendy, our singer, she went on tour with, no bunny and came back and decided that she didn't want to be in the band anymore for some reason i don't think that had anything to do with no bunny but while she was gone we had kind of started to write some different stuff that probably wouldn't have worked with her singing anyway so then we Mm -hmm. so then we just started doing choke chains and it's been a lot of fun I was burned out on music for a couple of years where I just couldn't freaking do anything, and then I kind of started to come back to feeling like doing it. Um My wife and I lived out in Memphis for a winter, and I played with Eric Oblivion's band, True Sons of Thunder, and then, and suddenly I'm like, oh, wait a oh. minute, that's right, music is fun, <laughs> it. you know, and like you know that kind of got me going. So now it's it's nice with choke chains because now I'm back. I'm into music, I'm back buying records, and I'm back playing shows and having a good time, and it's fun.
1: That's awesome. We encourage all of our listeners to check that stuff out, and thank you again, Tom. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much.
4: Well, it's been a pip. I hope you guys got what you wanted. (laughs) We did, yeah. All right, well, cool. well, kick me to the yeah, curb well,
1: then. Yeah, well, all we <laughs> wanted was a hello, and then we got this whole interview. So I'm very, yeah. I'm very happy, and, and thank you so much, Tom. Great stories, great everything, guys out there. Check out Choke Chains. Thank you so much, Tom. All
4: right, well, you guys have a great night. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tom. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye. <What's going> on?
1: <laughs> Two great interviews. You know what? I'll give you a little tease of what's coming up. We got another best of interview segment uh, before we get back to our regularly scheduled programming. So next episode is going to be the last in this best of trilogy. And then we'll get to another exciting brand spanking new interview. You guys are going to love it. That's your cliffhanger sans Sylvester Stallone. But uh, let's get into some shout-outs because we got a lot of people who are tweeting at us, Facebooking at us, doing a lot of stuff. It's so nice to see uh, some fellow third man enthusiasts talking about our show, and we'd we'd like to say thanks. So let's do an all Twi- tum- let's do an all Tumblr one. Why not? We'd like to thank Swap Meet Podcast, Aisha Six O Two Blog, Musicolic, I assume the Fourth X is for X-Men. We'd also like to thank Abil MTZ2802, King Problematic, Desire Divine, Let Mr. Jack White Rest, fantastic name, Uh, Scoop16, Hey Yeah, Icky Thump, Zeke Diablo 1969, Pink Floyd Pasta, thank you guys so much, Carrie Brownstein Screaming. That sounds terrifying, uh, unless it's in her singing, and then it's great. We'd also like to thank Hank... We already thanked Hank the Dank 111, but we could do it one more time. Let's give a big round of applause for Hank the Dank (laughs) 111. Woo! Love a good Hank the Dank. Anyway, uh, thank you guys. We appreciate it very much. And uh, we also, every episode, like to thank our Third Men podcast elite... Let's get yeah, elite. That's what they are. They're they're here with us day in, day out. Uh, Just just being generally really great. Uh, we'd like to give a shout out to Ben, the Beer Man Blues Carns, Kate McCoy, the Bones of the Operation, Jeremy Riles, keeping us on those rails. My oh me, it's me oh my. We have Andre, Ice Cold Lie Man. I see you over there. Eileen Corsano, Kelly Durgar, third person in spirit every week. Adrian King, the punk rock queen. We have the Red Red Rain Prosper, Amy Hart, the Heart of the Operation. Ha <laughs> ha, it's LOL 2.0. Eric Andrew Dodson over here, David Poe, Po, 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 Po essay Franco what does that mean we've got Yvette Wilkins she's Wilkin on Sunshine. we've got Brendan and Smith I might have added another in 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 there but uh who cares let's add all the in 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 there that we want this week. Why not? Let's do it. Do that even. And we've also got Brian, Walter, be nicer to me. There's no right opinion for you here, so go away. And the last but not least, the breath three killed my Garski. That one gets me every time. Gets me right in the chest. Oh, no, that's the robotic co-host stabbing me slowly, trying to make sure that I don't do this again. And if you'd like to be one of those... Shoutouts, you can find us and talk to us on a number of platforms, such as Facebook, facebook.com slash thirdmen. You can go on Twitter and find us at thirdmencast. Go on Tumblr, .tumblr thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can find us on WordPress, .wordpress thethirdmen.wordpress.com. That's where we host our show. This is usually where Paul would have a big old yawn that I'll edit out. But today, I'll do it. (sighs) Man. If yawns are contagious, I just made a lot of people yawn. Anyway, you can give us some listener questions and stuff like that on our Gmail. You can email us at thirdmanpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us also on Pippa, where we host the show. Pippa is great. You guys should support them. If you are thinking about starting a podcast, start with Pippa. They are not paying us to say that. Uh, we, We really appreciate what they've been doing for the show. In fact, they've been so kind to get us uh, access to apply to Spotify, which is a challenge to do sometimes. So we are now available on Spotify thanks to them. It's great. It's fantastic. You could also find us on a bunch of other podcatchers, but uh, one, one non-podcatcher you can find us on occasionally is YouTube, where I do some fun visualizers and animations, etc. Eh, who knows? Some stuff pops in. Maybe it'll be original content uh, that you can't find on the cast. I don't know. Maybe that's what I'm doing right now. Anyway, you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Every rating and review helps us. Please, please give us a rating and review. Uh, tell him that Paul's ghost sent you. He's not dead. He's fine. That sounds bad. That sounds like I'm inc- I'm incriminating myself, aren't I? He's fine. He's he's over. He's doing great. He'll be back soon. I can hear him now. He's coming. To- can you he- look? There he is. Look to your left. <laughs> I didn't run. That was Foley work. Theater of the mind. Real good episode. Anyway, uh, like I said before, if you have any listener questions, we will answer it. If you've got it, send us those through our Google or our Facebook or wherever you want. Thank you to Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help with our theme song, We're the Third Men, as well as Susanna Roundtree for the lovely, lovely intros and outros of our program. And I think that'll do it. And as always, I will be looking for a home in the uh, not-too-distant apocalyptic future where I will be running from a robotic co-host who is trying to destroy my brain. Bye!
0: For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at Third Cast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. We're the third men We're the third men
1: yeah. I think in the meantime But that'll be in the bloopers now. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you, Paul? He'll be back. Come back, Paul. He went to get some brats. Mm Mm-hmm. He had to get the brats.
3: All the brats. All the
1: brats. All the brats.